Two weeks ago, Palm Sunday, I handed out a little advice, and it was that um, during Holy Week, one should read all the Gospel accounts to do with Holy Week. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John read about uh, the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane and the trials of Jesus and the crucifixion and his resurrection and the resurrection appearances. And of course, you can't give out advice and not follow it. And uh, so I had a delightful week reading through all those Gospels and um, then have ended up being stuck on John ever since because John's Gospel is a little different to the others. Like Matthew, for example, has 28 chapters, but until you get past chapter 25, you don't get to those stories. But John, he's barely past halfway in the Gospel and he starts on that story. And so John's Gospel is 21 chapters, but the Last Supper begins with verse 1 of chapter 13. So you've got nine whole chapters and a lot of information. But what's especially different about John is that there's lots of chapters there that tell us what Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper. And then a whole chapter on aside from other prayers, one particular prayer that Jesus prayed at the Last Supper. But the, the funny thing is most Christians read all those chapters as I did for years and years and years and never realized these were the last words of Jesus instructing his followers on really critical important things. And so uh, take a fresh look at it. You go back to chapter 13 of the Gospel of John and you'll find it starts off right there saying that Jesus knew the time had come and the hour was at hand and he, 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 you know, they started to prepare the Passover. And then all those famous teachings of Jesus, like I'm the way, the truth and the life, all the things he says about, he says lots of things about the Holy Spirit coming to help them. He says lots of things about your prayers will be answered. He also has a lot to say about you, you very soon you won't see me, but then you'll see me. And when you know that he's speaking on the last night and you read those chapters, they, the chapters come alive in a new way because you see all these little indicators along the way that he realizes time short and he's telling them a whole lot of things he wants them to know. And so um, we're going to look at one of those, a little part of that in, in a minute. But I have two things to tell you about today. I have something really interesting to tell you about Jesus and then something really interesting to tell you about us. So um, a little prayer so we get the help of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for the help of the Holy Spirit. You've given us the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth to teach us about Jesus and to bring alive your word. I ask, Lord, that today you'd bring alive the word of God in the heart of everybody here including those who have not been born again, that, that today they would hear the call of God and that every one of us would hear the call to follow Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to live holy lives, to be prayerful, to be full of faith, all the things you say to us. Lord, build up the saints today and grant understanding that it would go deep to every heart, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first thing is, our subject is Jesus. And... Uh, if, if I can be blunt about it, right up front, if you ask the question, what is Israel? The answer is Jesus. Some people get hung up 
as if there's some special thing out here called Israel, apart from the church, and, and somehow it's holy and it's special, and, and for some people it becomes idolatry. Now true in this world there are many things called Israel. We had a child born in this church years ago and his parents gave him the name Israel. And, and of course once upon a time there was a man called Israel. That is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel. And then he had 12 sons. They became 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. And actually this was God at work. This was the history of salvation. God making covenant with Abraham and so on all the way down through David, ultimately Jesus. Jesus was the, the, the branch, the, you know, the shoot of Jesse. The, Jesse was David's father. All, all that prophetic language comes alive when you know more and more facts about it. But Israel, um, natural Israel, you know, was largely a disappointment, and yet the Lord kept working because he was bringing out of it the true Israel. Jesus is Israel. And anybody who is in Jesus is Israel. And I'm going to show you something simple from the Gospel of John today that gives you a very strong evidence of that. If you're in Christ, you are what the Bible calls the Israel of God. So every Jew in Christ, every Gentile in Christ, and then there's no more Jew or Gentile, you're in Christ, and that is the Israel of God. And this is why we continue to preach the gospel to Jews. We continue to preach it to everybody in the world to bring them into what is the true house, the true temple, the true land. And uh, they are the ones who in, in fact inherit the world. So let me show you. Uh, this is by the way why in Matthew's gospel, I think it is, you'll read it said, you know, because as you all know, Soon after Jesus was born, Herod tried to kill him. But prior to that, angel warns Joseph, they flee to Egypt. And later on, when the danger's passed, the Lord brings them back from Egypt. And Matthew tells you why. It was to fulfill the prophecy that says, out of Egypt, I called my son. There are huge numbers of things like this in the Bible that indicate that Jesus himself is the true Israel and anybody in him. Now, here we go. But, but, but in the Old Testament, the vine that is a grapevine, was a common symbol used concerning Israel as, as God would speak with Israel. He, you know, there's all, Bible's full of pictures, full of metaphors. This was a very important one. For example, Psalm 80 and verse 8 and 9. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. We're here talking about the Old Testament nation of Israel. But then when you get to Isaiah chapter 5, first, uh, we just quickly read the first few verses. By this time, Israel was causing the Lord a lot of grief. He kept warning them, warning them through all the prophets that, you know, judgment would come if they kept going in this way. The land full of bloodshed, full of idolatry. So here the Lord, uh, prophecy and poetry is astounding. And just take a look at the beauty of this, of what the Lord had to say. Let me sing a song for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. Who's he talking about? Old Testament Israel. He built a watchtower in the midst and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do 
for my vineyard than I, than I have not done in it. When, uh, when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns will grow, shall grow up. I will also command the clouds, they, they'll not rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so judgment came upon. Now, Jesus actually takes this up and tells a parable. Uh, These stories are never identical. They're they're always metaphors or stories to communicate a truth. But but here's Jesus' version, Matthew 21, the parable of the tenants. Here another parable, says Jesus. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. All, All the same details are there. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same. Finally, he sent his son. Now, you know who you're talking about now, don't you? Finally, he sent his son to Israel, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable end. And he did. The destruction of Jerusalem was most miserable. That's the, that is what Jesus called great tribulation. Back in AD 67, 70. When, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do? They said, he'll put those wretches to a miserable end. Now remember, we're still reading the parable. Jesus is saying this. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And notice this line from Jesus. There's there's to be a new wineskin, to use another metaphor, because he's about to pour out new wine, and these new tenants will produce fruit, the fruit that God is looking for. Hold this in mind, the fruit that must be born. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, Jesus made a bold statement. This is not parable. This is him declaring publicly in Jerusalem. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And if you keep on reading the gospel and Matthew, uh, that's Matthew and Mark and Luke, they all have this parable. In all three, it says the Pharisees knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to kill him. So, This is background so that you can see, in fact, the Bible in an extensive way uses this analogy of a vine or vineyard. Now, Jesus in the Gospels makes a lot of I am statements. There are seven places he makes an I am statement using metaphor, and there are various other places where he comes straight out and says, I am, I am he. But here are the metaphors. All seven. First of all, and you'll know them, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's one more. The seventh one, he says, I am the true vine. 
Jesus is the vine. Jesus is the Israel of God. So let's go quickly to where we find that. This is John 15. The whole chapter is good, but we'll only read the first few verses. John 15 from verse 1. And you'll notice in this opening passage, he actually says that he's the vine twice. But the opening word, you see it on your screen right now, he doesn't just say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. He is the true Israel. And anybody in Christ is Israel. Anyone called to Christ is being called to, to be Israel with him. So now we read, now with this in mind and bearing, he, what's he looking for? What was he looking for from old covenant Israel? What was he looking for when he, when he sent the servants? He was looking for fruit. Now read it in this context. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already, now he's speaking to you now today, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now he says it again, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Uh, suppose a branch is cut off. Do you know that with grapevines, like many plants and many trees, um, in this world, God has done something very special. You don't need, always need seed to grow things. Very well, cutting is even more effective. You could cut off a branch, and if you tended it carefully and knew how to handle it and plant in the right soil and kept it very wet, it'll put out roots and grow, and you'd have a separate one. And if you, and if you own a vineyard, you can, you can grow as many grapes as you like. However, Jesus has made it very clear here that he doesn't do that. He doesn't take cuttings, remove them from Jesus, and grow a different plant. There's no way that you, if you're independent, can stay alive. Instead, we get the other effect. Uh, at home, we, we see it too. You know, you, you, in your garden too, you cut off the bits you don't want. You're cutting back a tree, or your hedge, and you throw it in a pile, and it dries out and it dies. And if you lived in the bush, you'd burn it. If you live in the city, you'd take it to the dump. But either way, it is dead, dead, dead. And Jesus is very clear, if you're not properly joined into Jesus, if you're not fruitful, if you're not really his, if your heart isn't his, you, and you, 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 you refuse to produce the fruit he wants, you know, sooner or later, this issue is in cleansing judgment. However, as the scripture says, we're hopeful of better things concerning you, that your heart really is for Jesus. In which case, because when the heart keeps crying out to Jesus, when the heart keeps hoping, 
keeps looking. Faith stays alive. Even, even when you mess up, you know, even when you fail, you cry out to God. No, there's, there's fruit being born there uh, to, to some degree. And uh, the, Lord, the Lord keeps working with you. Now, so fruitfulness. This is the first thing. I wanted to tell you what was interesting about Jesus. He's the true vine. He is the true Israel. And if you're in Christ, you're Israel. Praise God. Now a little bit about us. Down to earth now. Back to, back to some realities. When I visited the Solomon Islands 32 years ago, 1990, the revival was still running hot. It had been running hot for 20 years in Malaita and continued for a long time after that. And they, uh, shall we say, the leaders of the revival always, always did everything they needed to do to keep the revival alive, which was primarily prayer. If, if they thought the, the revival was fading or, or things were, were going back to being dull, they would pour themselves into nights of prayer. They guarded their hearts. They, they kept themselves free from sin. They corrected sin. And it was astounding how that church grew from, because it was a specific church that had this revival that grew from 70,000 members to 270,000 members in 20 years. And that's where we went to visit. And uh, my first week or so was on a little island called Nongasila. And half a kilometer away in the ocean was another little island called Kwai. And each of these islands was only five or 10 acres. It was close to the mainland. People lived there because there were no mosquitoes and they gardened on the mainland. But each of these islands had a church and the whole village was converted. And the villagers met, they met at 4 a.m. every single day for prayer and everyone in the village came. The grandmothers, the babes in arm, everyone was at the 4 a.m. prayer meeting every single day. And Nongasila, where I was staying, that had gone on 20 years. There were crutches along the wall that had been left behind by people who had been healed. There were various occasions when the Holy Spirit poured out there. But while I was there, the occasion came up for a fellowship meeting. Now here in our church, we use the term fellowship meeting for when you gather the members together to discuss business. But they used it differently. And we were told that oh, next Sunday was a fellowship meeting. And it happened to be that at low tide, there was a, a sand spit between the two islands and you could walk from one to the other. So the next Sunday, the tide was right. And so the two churches would join together for Sunday morning and stay together for a fellowship meeting. So we walked from Nongasila over to Kwai and there was the normal Sunday morning service of a couple of hours of you know, singing and worshipping and preaching and then the fellowship meeting began and this is what happened. They would uh, announce the fellowship meeting is now beginning and they would announce us, they'd start singing a song and it was the most astounding experience to be with those people singing in one accord and they would sing and sing and sing the same song until presently, someone moved with conviction would be standing out the front and at this point the song would fade away. And the person standing here under conviction would confess their sin. Now this is not just any sin. The sins to be confessed were any, any sin that they'd committed against the body of Christ. And uh, they would confess it you know, they'd lied about someone 
or they'd carried unforgiveness in their heart towards someone. You know, they'd, they'd been bitter, whatever. And, and I heard one after another. And what would happen then is that as someone would, very often with tears, confess what had been in their heart or their evil deed that had harmed the body, the whole crowd would then rise with prayer. That is, there'd be a, a great a waterfall of prayer poured out every single person present pray for that person forgive them bless them you know wash them and then the, the prayer would die away and they'd start singing again start the next song change the song start singing and they continue to sing the song usually didn't have to sing it very long and someone else was standing there and uh, this fellowship meeting went on quite a few hours you know, two, three, four hours and maybe 20 people had come forward. I remember one woman came forward to confess that she'd been to a witch doctor on the mainland to get uh, medicine, that is to get, uh, to get a spell against somebody in the church that she had a grievance with. She confessed it publicly. Someone else confessed jealousy. You know, someone else confessed this, confessed that. And why did they, they and, and they did this fellowship meeting every six weeks. And why did they do that? They said it was to keep the church clean, to keep it holy, to keep the, the blessing they had from the Lord, this weight of the spirit, that is the revival, to keep the fire of the Holy Spirit alive in the heart of all the people, to keep the church alive, to keep the church clean, they confess their sins to one another. Well, primarily, of course, what they were dealing with there was forgiveness, issues of forgiveness, cleansing of the heart, cleansing of bitterness. I heard another story told to me, um, and it was of one of these villages in the Solomon Islands. It was not at that time, but some years later I heard this story where in one of those villages where revival was and the church was alive, one evening there was a, a, a teenage boy and a teenage girl who met secretly under the tree and, and had, had a bit of a secret tryst going. And in that culture, this was not to happen. And um, they weren't they weren't married and they went beyond the bounds of the normal, healthy culture. And the problem wasn't that so, so much as this. That someone in the village knew about it and they told someone else. And then in turn they told some others. And in turn they told some others. Because in these villages everybody's related and it's a, there's a church. And so what you had is within an hour or two is quite large numbers of people all talking about, well, they did this and they said that and they shouldn't have done it, blah, blah, blah. The pastor of the church and his wife together spent the entire night in prayer. They prayed the whole night crying out to God to save the revival because that slander that gossip would kill the life of the church if they didn't 
But your experience of church life, you know, as you've known it in Western culture is much lower ebb, pretty much anything goes, people talk freely, loose tongues, too much unforgiveness around. People talk thinking they're, you know, righteous when actually they're slanderers and gossips and placing a slur on other people. In, um, in Aboriginal mysticism in Australia, you have this thing called pointing the bone. And when you live in that culture, pretty much everyone who has a bone pointed at them dies. In other, in other words, it's spiritism, they get special witch doctors to do things, they get special messengers to go with this bone that's been impregnated with demons and you know, point it and sometimes the people die within days. I mean, this is all, all history you can read about at Wikipedia. But when a Christian, just remember that in, in your finger you've got a bone. And when you point your finger at someone, how do you point your finger? You don't actually have to use your finger, but when you say to somebody, oh, so-and-so this or so-and-so that, you've just pointed the bone. You've just released a demon that is a spirit of death that, that grinds away on that person, you know, robbing them of life, robbing them of liberty and vitality. No wonder people get sicker and so on and so forth. This, this can happen. In, um, in many cultures, including our own, pointing at other people, you know, say, say you're in, say you're at the coffee shop, sitting, you know, chatting with someone, and there's a couple of people across there that you, you kind of know, they're from another church. What if someone, you know, what if you notice that one of them is, you know, says to them, you point, points you out, you wonder what's going on, right? But that's considered rude. In our culture, it's rude. In many cultures, it's rude. And do you know why? Because by pointing at someone, you automatically, but without their consent, make them an object of scrutiny. But this is no different if you speak a slur on another person. Do you know, do you know what a slur is? It's when you speak a word that degrades another person, puts a question over them. A slur. A slur is a terrible thing. Anyway, um, I, I thought it helpful to talk about it. This is a, a, a permanently important subject. Do, do you know that biblically speaking, uh, if, if you were not a Christian and you start reading the New Testament, the Holy Spirit sees to this. The thing that comes up constantly is Jesus. You, you need to yield to Jesus, receive the words of Jesus, be be saved by Jesus, be healed by Jesus. But once you get that sorted out and you come into Christ and your sins are forgiven and you keep reading the Bible, there's another big message that keeps coming up and that is how you now live. Forgive your enemies, do good to other people, you know, guard your tongue, have a clean heart. That's the message that the Holy Spirit will bring up as second most important. Then there are others that follow on from that. Well, when we, when we don't, well, let me tell you what happened. Over the last few months, perhaps going back six months, I've just been feeling some odd things in the spirit realm that because they're just a little bit here, a little bit there, I didn't tie anything together. But I thought, no, there's some, 
there's some odd things going on and there's some weaknesses and there seem to be evident that even the body of Christ in the city seemed to be weaker or seemed to be a bit disjointed and yet you couldn't quite put your finger on it and it wasn't the thing you lived with all the time but you, every now and again you'd get touched by it, the sense of it and it wasn't until the first week of the school holidays and I was at Carnarvon Gorge and I was, I'd actually gone to bed but I was lying in bed thinking about some things I'd heard when all of a sudden it started making sense and the next day more sense and the next day more sense and then by Saturday night I'm home and it must have been the Saturday before Easter. I'm sitting at home in the lounge chair and been praying and reading, and I get up to walk and find I'm so crippled I can barely walk. Now, I'll show you what it was like. You stand up and then and, and you go like this. And I had, to walk, I had to walk the whole length of my house like that before I freed up. And then it happened a second time. But, but this is the Lord speaking to you, because I'm, I'm not crippled. The Lord was telling me something, that something, something was in the spirit realm that was crippling the body of Christ. And so I kept praying into it. And not only that, it was strengthening our enemies and um, strengthening the spirits that oppose us. Anyway, I'm going to tell you what it is, but I, but I, don't, I don't want you to know you know, who it was that was involved. I just want you to think about it as a general principle that this is what happens. But there had been circumstances over many, many months in which, you know, someone hurt a couple of other people and, and, and they found it hard to forgive and then in, her, in, in, in turn they hurt. And, but then they shared this with others and then someone else they shared it to, turns out there was a bit of a stronghold in them and, and so they became someone who repeated this and, and it got, re- and look, it, everyone thought it was low key. Nobody thought they were doing the wrong thing, but they just talked. There were people talk, 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 talk. So a- across various churches, goes to other cities, it's just talk. And nobody thinks they're doing the wrong thing. Nobody wants to do the wrong thing. Everybody thinks they're righteous, but talk, 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 talk. And when this happens, it is slander, it is gossip, and it is unforgiveness. And the scripture that came to mind, because I was getting early stuff from the Lord, there was a scripture came to mind, and it was this one, where Paul, I read it to you, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, anyone you forgive... I also forgive, and what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Ah, an interesting phrase. I have forgiven in the sight of Christ. So this is an apostle who doesn't even know what's gone on, doesn't even know who has been forgiven, but he says, if anyone needs forgiveness, I forgive them in the sight of Jesus. Why is that? He tells you now, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. And what was happening was right here in Rockhampton, as that thing spread across various churches, and all it was was talk. You know, they said this, they did that, blah, 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 blah. A spirit was driving it. So that in the spirit realm, it became a stronghold, a nest of demons that locked this in place and kept the talk going. And it was crippling the body of Christ and empowering demons. Now, it's interesting, when a spirit gets on something, people find it hard to be normal. 
For example, I, I mean, I discovered this years ago. When you marry, I've been married over 50 years. And along the way, you have discussions. Some of them get heated. I know most of you that wouldn't happen. I see all the grins though. No, no, no. You, look, when you're married, there are sometimes very important things to discuss and you don't agree. But you've got to work it through. And normally all of this just has a normal level where you can have a disagreement, you can have an argument, but there's no hard feelings. And, um, but what I noticed, and I think the first time I noticed it was when we were living in Petey Street, and this would have been back about 1992. I was not having a, had this bit of a disagreement this night, but what I noticed was there was a hardness in it. And it's like, I felt hard, she felt hard. I felt angry, like there was an edge to it. And I suddenly realized this is not a normal argument. There's a spirit on it. And so I said to her, and I stopped, I rebuked the spirit, and guess what? Everything went back to normal. The hardness went out of the heart back to being able to talk it through, work it out. Every one of you, look, every one of you will have this experience in life where you, you might find it hard to let something go. You might find it, you might, be no, you might normally find it easy to forgive people, but suddenly there's something you find it hard to forgive. There might be a disagreement in which normally you'd be happy to, you know, have different opinions, but you, you feel some angst about this one. I would, I would guarantee nine times out of ten it's because there is a spirit driving it. And if you'll, if you'll recognize it for what it is and stop and simply bind that spirit, cut that spirit off, rebuke that spirit of you know, hostility or anger or you know, meanness or whatever it is, just re rebuke it, oh, the heart relaxes and you're back to having the freedom that you normally have in Christ to you know, accept, accept struggles and forgive and make up and, and get on with it and, and you end up, you know, even though you're hurt, no, no, it's, the heart is free of that, you know, let's work together again. That's normal Christian life. Just remember a spirit can get on these things and drive it. And in this particular situation, spirits were driving it. So I started dealing with it in the spirit realm. I started binding the spirits, cutting off the slander, cutting off the unforgiveness, but in particular, releasing forgiveness to people. What Paul was doing here, he says, if there's anything else to forgive, I forgive. That Satan might not outwit us. And as he did that over a few days, all the heat went out of that stronghold. And that's without even speaking to anyone about it. And I, you know, I'm happy to help anyone who wants help, but, but you're still gonna deal with the stuff that's in the spirit realm. So I thought, well, Let's take a few minutes today and, and show you how important it is. Now, time, time is kind of gone, but I'll, I want to show you a couple of scriptures on this subject before we finish and then give everyone an opportunity not to not leave here today without a clean heart. So if we quickly read a few scriptures, Psalm 15, 1 to 3, Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Kind of old language, isn't it? But who, who would abide with the Lord? Who would, who would live under the shadow of the Almighty? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who? Now look at, this is the critical verse. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Oh, by the way, if you slander someone, 
you have done evil to them. Now, in, in these kinds of situations, people think they're just speaking the truth. In fact, I know that the person who is really the core of that stronghold, uh, someone not here, didn't belong to this church, someone who's the core of that stronghold, they would say these things out of a sense of you know, righteousness and addressing things, but no, it, it, that wasn't so. It, was, it in fact was slander and gossip and unforgiveness. And by the way, unforgiveness in the Lord's eyes is hatred. Hatred in the Lord's eyes is murder. They're, they're all of a spirit, all of the same spirit. So who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor? If you slander someone else, if you put a slur on someone else, you have done evil nor take up a reproach against his friend. So in other words, you hear a matter, you don't repeat it. And uh, Jesus made it clear, Mark 7, I don't have time to read all these now, but Mark in Mark 7 verse 20, he says that what comes out of a person is what defiles him. He lists a whole lot of things, but right there in verse 22, he lists slander. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Uh, Ephesians 4 is probably an important one. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. Now, if you, what you find is, if you, if you have a loose tongue, you grieve the Holy Spirit. You grieve the Holy Spirit away if you have a loose tongue. Now, here's Proverbs 10. Here's a bit of Solomon on the subject. Four verses, one after the other. Whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a fool. That's verse 18, verse 19. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. Actually, there's another translation of this I've always liked. It says, um, where there are many words, sin is not absent. That's, that's inevitable. Verse 20, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of sense. Um, uh, quickly then, before finishing, could I, could I merely state in my own words what unforgiveness does to us? If I carry unforgiveness in my heart, or if you carry unforgiveness in your heart, it has outcomes. And, and I've listed five, but there are more. But here are these five. First of all, if you struggle to forgive someone, say they've hurt you, say that thing is there and you think, oh, it shouldn't have been, and you can't let it go, your problem is that even though it might have been the other person's sin and the other person's fault, by not forgiving, you have chained yourself. It's like you've taken a, a ball and chain and, and chained that person's ankle to your ankle and you're tied to them in the spirit realm. So whatever you carry an attitude, whatever you carry a judgment, whatever you carry unforgiveness, you're actually connected to that person spiritually and all kinds of things can come down the turnpike from that. You can be affected by their moods, you can be affected by their spirit, certainly whatever spirit is on them, any unclean spirit on them has direct access to you because you have tied yourself to them and you won't let it go. Very dangerous stuff actually, unforgiveness. Number two, when you carry unforgiveness in your heart, it cuts off the power of your prayers. Jesus is very specific. He said, when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. When, no, when relationships are out of order and you're not willing to put them right, 
Now, it's a different matter if the other person's not willing to put it right, but if you're not willing to put it right, no, it messes up your prayer life, cuts off your power. There's a third thing. If you, if you carry unforgiveness in your heart, you won't let it go. It actually brings you under judgment. And uh, because with unforgiveness, in fact, is you judging another person. They're no good. They shouldn't have said it. They shouldn't have done it. You know, they should pay back. They, they should fix themselves up. You are judging them. You're making, in your heart, you're making proclamations. Well, you're now subject to spiritual law. So all the judgments that you have issued apply to you. And they start working their way out against you. This is simply the way the world works that God has made. There's a fourth thing, though. It gets worse. When you actually carry an attitude to another person, um, you know, you, you're, a, you're a loose talker, there's slander, there's slur, there is unforgiveness, there's bitterness, there's anger, there's hatred, whatever it might be. As a Christian, of course, you have authority and power, but because of those attitudes, you have actually loaned out your authority and power to demons. So demons now have the use of the authority and power that should have been yours, and you've opened the doors and they can, they can ride on your attitudes and your values, your belief. They ride on that to then harm the church and harm other people. That's why unforgiveness is a very dangerous thing. That's why slander is dangerous. But there's one more, and that is, I mean there's more, but this is for today. Unforgiveness in the heart makes the heart go sour. You, you become more and more bitter. And of course, once the heart goes sour, guess what? It starts to affect the way, the freedom of your mind, your imagination starts to affect your body. I mean, we're talking long term, well, medium term to the long term, you can have aches and pains and weaknesses and problems. A lot of stuff works out in the body, not just in the body, in circumstances in life, in, in relationships, in your home, in your family, at work. All this stuff has an outworking. I remember years ago when I was the chaplain to the Order of St. Luke right here in Rockhampton, used to go to their monthly meetings and this day we were down at the uh, what, what was a little church that used to be in Musgrave Street and uh, the meeting was there, this lunch hour meeting. And so my job as chaplain was anybody at the end of the meeting needed healing, they'd come forward, I'd pray for them. And uh, this lady, she was a regular attender at the meeting, but she came forward and she wanted prayer and she had arthritis bad in both hands. And so I go to pray for her, but immediately I feel... No, no, there's, there's bitterness in the heart that's come from unforgiveness. And it was very simple. And I just said to her, you know, is there anybody you need to forgive? Are you carried unforgiveness? And it turns out there was. And all of this took about one minute flat. And I asked her just to repent of it. She prayed a little prayer of repentance. I prayed for her. She's completely healed. Arthritis all gone. You know, miracle on the spot. And, you know, you don't always get the immediate miracles, but it demonstrates the principle. And uh, therefore, we all, we all work, we, we, we seek to work to keep our hearts clean. So uh, it's all I have time to share with you today. Um, there is one more thing probably I should mention. Jesus said again and again, and again, I can think of right now three places we could get it from in the Gospels. That if you want your Father in heaven to forgive you, you must forgive others. 
and um, and uh, so in, in Luke 6, he says, Judge not, and you'll not be judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. And here's the summary statement that applies to all four of those things. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Uh, I want to close on this note. Very positive note. Uh, in John 20, Jesus appeared to his disciples around about now, like if we take, say, a week after Easter, a week after Resurrection Sunday, around about now. Well, actually, it's not. If we look more closely at the text, it says on the evening of that day. So it's on the very day. There you go. It's right there. On the very day that Jesus rose from the dead, he appears that night. And if we followed down, they were, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord go all the way down to, okay, verse 21, 22, I want you to see. Is that what we got there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is, I want you to get this. Jesus said to them, and he says it to you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them. Now, now notice the opening words of verse 22. And when he had said this. Now, you've got to, so you've got to connect these two together. First of all, he says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And when he had said that, then he said this. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, we're not talking now about your personal forgiveness. We're now talking about a ministry forgiveness. This is what Paul was doing. If there's anyone else needs forgiveness, I forgive them in the sight of God. In other words, you're clearing up stuff in the spirit realm as best you can. You have this job too. Your, your task is not only to keep your own heart clean in your personal relationships, always forgiving people, never being a slanderer or a gossip, never repeating a matter, never putting a slur on someone, never, never letting a reproach remain on someone, because actually you're the, you're the person who ends up in the prison and you end up poorer. No, no, the idea is to give, free, give forgiveness. Give it easily, give it quickly, because then you're the person that's rich. But on top of that, because you're now free, because you're now full of the Holy Spirit, and because your, your prayers will bear fruit. By the way, this is all about you bearing fruit, which is what Jesus wants. And there are two kinds of fruit. One kind of fruit is what goes on in your heart. What kind of, what, what kind of you know, process goes on that makes you the kind of person Jesus wants? And the other is then you know, what you do in the world. But here's a way to bear fruit. Now that you're full of the Holy Spirit and your heart is clean, and you see someone else, who is struggling with sin, pray for them because you can forgive them. You can pray for their forgiveness. And if someone, you know, I, I know myself, if someone was here in the prayer line and they were struggling to believe they were forgiven, I can lay hands on them and release them and say, you are forgiven in Jesus' name. I've been given this authority right here by this scripture, quite apart from whatever else I know in my heart. Scripture give us, gives us authority if we're counseling people, if we're ministering to people, if we're serving them, if we're praying for them. We actually have grace to help people find forgiveness and to straight out declare the word of the Lord. You've confessed your sin. You are forgiven for his namesake. Like that other verse we had earlier. Now you are clean through the word I've spoken to you. 
Praise God. And finally, here's what John said in, in 1 John 5. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I didn't, uh, what John's saying is I'm not talking about that. I do not say that one should pray for that. He doesn't, you, you wouldn't know about that. You wouldn't know anybody that's committed a sin leading to death, believe me. But he, but he says here, but if you see people you know, struggling with sin, pray for them and God will give them life because of your prayers. So let's, let's, let's go to prayer ourselves. Let's, let's quieten our hearts before the Lord. It's, it's always an ongoing need to keep our hearts clean. There's an opportunity for everyone today. And just here before the Lord, you bow your head and you humble your heart. You ask the Lord to forgive you your sins and you forgive others for their sins. Forgive them. This is a wonderful opportunity to allow the Lord to wash your heart, to find again fellowship, refreshed with the Lord and refreshed in the church, the fellowship of the saints. True fellowship only is really only present when there's oneness in the heart. For this, the hearts need to be clean. If you hear of tales, go to prayer. Pray to break it because it'll be a demonic stronghold. Pray to forgive. And make sure that you yourself so walk with the Lord that you find it easy to forgive. And if, if along the way comes some particular thing that's hard to forgive, ah, stay right there in prayer until you're forgiven. Don't carry it. Too dangerous. But you will find if you forgive and forgive and forgive, it's power to you. It is blessing to you. Amazing how the Lord takes those kinds of people and lifts them up and promotes them when they persevere. And Lord, I thank you. Thank you for all the perseverance of, of the love of God, of God the Father and God the Son, of God the Holy Spirit. Thank you for all the perseverance of the living God with our souls. And that even when we've had longish periods of being low and and dragging our feet and having bad attitudes, you persevered. You brought us through those. You constantly renew us. And I thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. And I thank you, Lord, that even here today, I can proclaim over everyone gathered, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And I can proclaim now to you all, now you are clean through the word that Jesus has spoken to you. Lord, I thank you for cleansing and I, I pray for every heart here today that, that there'd be a deep cleansing, not just a, super, a superficial one, but a cleansing deep to the heart. 
so that the heart itself would be liberated from the need for loose speech and the wagging tongue. No need to repeat a matter. I ask the Lord that you'd wash every heart clean. And not only ourselves, but we pray for all the body of Christ today in Rockhampton and, and, and surrounds and all of this region. I ask the Lord for the forgiveness of sin. Where the leaders, where the whether husbands or wives or children, with young people, Lord, I ask today that all through the body of Christ there be such forgiveness. Thank you that you deal with us so faithfully and so honestly. And now everyone present, if there is any matter that, that you ought to yield right now to the Lord, yield it in this, in this moment of quietness, don't leave this place with unconfessed sin. Yield the heart. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, and thank you for forgiveness. And I pray that the body of Christ would be healed, that those things that do not make for peace in the body the power of them would be broken, they would be removed. The body would be liberated. The body of Christ, not only in Mount Morgan, but in Rockhampton and all around, would grow. That this tree that you've planted would bear fruit with every branch of the true vine, including all these branches who are here today, would bear fruit under God the fruit of a life lived uprightly in the spirit of holiness. Lord, your word go deep to every heart today. I thank you, Lord, this word is not just for this five minutes so that, so that people can have uh, a spiritual blessing. I thank you, Lord, this is a lifetime word. And so having... Having reminded ourselves today of this word, I ask, Lord, that this word would be all the more clear, all the more resting upon the heart of everyone present for all the days to come. That every life here would be lived in the light of the word of God. Every heart desiring holiness. Every, every heart committed to yieldedness to the Lord so that we might bear fruit. I thank you, Lord. We remain in Christ and in the name of the Lord Jesus, I bless this church, dedicating afresh every family, every heart, every home to the service of Jesus because, Lord, you have said that if we abide in you, we'll bear much fruit. And so may peace bear fruit. That is, as a people, as families committed together in love, may peace bear fruit in this city. Peace bear fruit in the word of God and in prayer. Peace bear fruit in love. Peace bear fruit in, in partnership with the rest of the body of Christ. Peace bear fruit in the nations because of the word you've given us. Thank you for that word. We receive that word, a precious word in Jesus' name. And I invite the band to come.